since learning the truth about alcohol over four years ago, I've become pretty skeptical about anything that seems too good to be true. You know, like alcohol. If you're like me and you can spot a too good to be true health hack from a mile away, congrats, you're a skeptic too. Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. I take Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus every morning because it has high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. It's gentle on an empty stomach and has a minty essence in every bottle that helps make taking my multis actually enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com forward slash sober mom. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for 25% off. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne, of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram, If you are a mama who has questioned your relationship with alcohol at times, if you're wondering if maybe it's making motherhood harder, this is for you. I will be having candid, honest, funny conversations with other moms who have also thought, hmm, maybe motherhood is better without alcohol. Is it possible? We'll chat and we'll talk about all things sobriety and how we've found freedom in sobriety I don't consider myself an alcoholic. You don't have to either. And maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey, and I'm so excited to get started. Hello. Happy Monday. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you had a great weekend. I am fresh off a trip to New York to see one of my best friends, and I am so excited to come back home to this episode. So today we have Hillary Phelps. Hillary is the oldest of the Phelps children. She is a, oh my gosh, she's just an overall badass. She's a speaker. She's an entrepreneur. She's an addiction recovery advocate, a holistic coach, a retreat facilitator. You guys, Hillary's story is just so fascinating to me. She has been sober for 16 years, but she did not share her sobriety story in public until 2022. So until last year, we talk about that and the difference that it makes to bring truth to light and to share our stories and be proud of it and heal and just what a difference that makes. I am just, I adore this lady. And I am so inspired by her. I know you will be too. Don't forget, come and join us in the Sober Mom Life Cafe. You get all of the good stuff. You get connection. You get community, Zoom support meetings, exclusive chats, book clubs. I mean, sky's the limit. 
also, we are stepping up the support for the holiday season. So we have extra support for November and December. Come on over. The link is in the show notes. All of the info is there. And then also don't forget, if you love the show, rate and review it and give it a follow so you know when we have new episodes. And um, most importantly, the most important thing of all, enjoy Hillary Phelps. Hillary, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad we connected. I think first on Instagram, right? Like I remember seeing you pop up as at 15 years of sobriety, you kind of came out in your sobriety. And I remember seeing that and being like, ooh, I need to hear this story. <laughs> like I need to talk to Hillary. I love that. Yes, I think so. That's like the beautiful thing about Instagram and social media is that you get to connect with other wonderful people. And I feel like, and maybe it's me or maybe it's just the people that I'm following, but I feel like those connections are happening more and more. Like more people are popping up like you and have these powerful stories and great platforms to spread this message of hope to people who are suffering or struggling with addiction. It's so true. And it's all what you make of it, right? Like Instagram can be a pit of despair and horrible and... (laughs) Like it can, it can be a cesspool, but then if you curate it and find people who really you find inspiring and especially the sober curious and and sober movement, yeah, like it's life-changing over there. It can be. I agree. And I feel like with anything too, it's intention, right? Like, so like this past year has really been intention. Like what's my intention for doing anything? And I find that Instagram, I noticed I can do it as a checkout but I try to use it in an intentional way, like connect with people and great stories and find motivation or find different, you know, great quotes. I always find great inspirational quotes on Instagram. Yes. Oh, totally. I check out on Instagram too much. You're going to have to teach me this mindful Instagram stuff because I, I literally like even this morning, I have, I have a lot to do today. And I was like, oh, let's see Elise Myers like on TikTok or on Instagram and let's, you know, like make me laugh and I want to hear her stories. And then it's like 20 minutes go by and I'm like, oh shit, right. I got stuff to do. Okay. And look, I say this with like, this is literally probably a week long thing that I've said. It's like intention. That's like, good. Like, a like, week. Hey, that's more than I've ever done. <laughs> it's like very, I'm like, need to schedule it almost. Like I'm going to allow myself 10 minutes in the morning to like see what my friends are posting or see what, you know, full of inspiration are posting or follow those things, comment on those. Like, because like, that's why we share things, right? Because we want people to say like, I'm so proud of you or happy birthday or so. Yeah. Connection. Yeah. Yes. I love that. So it's like 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon and 10 minutes in the evening. And the evening is where I'm not the best at holding those boundaries. Totally. (sighs) But you're like, I've been holding my boundaries all day. I'm tired (laughs) of it. I'm tired. (laughs) My boundaries are out the window. And that's, that is why like the witching hour is so hard. If we're just done, like, I'm like, okay, I've kept my shit together all day. Like uh, now at five o'clock, five 30, like, just let me just go. Letting loose just looks differently, right? Like letting loose before is like, for me, like bottles of wine. Now it's like, yeah, it's Instagram, you know, so I can pick your battles. Totally. And it is like, it is perspective, right? And it's like, okay, so I've never heard about a you know, woman losing her family because of too much Instagram. I'm sure maybe there is something out there, but like you can't give, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's all perspective. Wine or Instagram, you guys choose Instagram, okay? Yes. So I want to hear about 
you coming out at 15 years sober. I think that's fascinating. But first, I do want to go back, like take us back to childhood where the, as my therapist's mom calls where the wiring was installed. Like, let's talk about that first. So, I mean, going back, I had a pretty like normal childhood. I was a straight A student. I was a swimmer my entire life. I swam through college. I started swimming at age seven. I was the fastest swimmer in the country. I was tracking times with an Olympian, like at her oh age my God. group. And, like, I was, I was, my parents were super dedicated. They would take me to practice in the morning and practice at night. And my sister and brother then followed into the pool later because my parents were like, if we're driving her, like, you're doing this too. And so I started, yeah, in 1985 when I was seven. And I just loved it. And I wanted to, be the best. And I wanted, it's so cliche, but I wanted the big trophies. And so I started swimming year round and, but everything on the outside said that I was really good. I mean, you know, like straight A's, like a fast swimmer. I was in, but in sixth grade, I vividly remember this moment where these girls were making fun of my outfit, right? Like I had, I had this eclectic style. Girls suck. <laughs> they just do it. Especially in sixth grade. Oh my God. I hear stories now. I thought it was hard when I was growing up. Like, I know. Girls are vicious. I know it's so hard and with social media and now the bullying is like in your home. I mean, my oldest is nine and she's already kind of feeling that, but I'm like, no social media until you're like 25. Not in my house. Right. right. <laughs> Not under this roof. That's my rules. Don't do yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't rewind back to no, it. Oh, it's okay. But these girls made fun of me. They made fun of my shoes. And I remember that day was the first day that I allowed someone else's voice to be louder than my own. Ooh. You know, so when we talk about women and these girls, it's like yes. empowerment that, I mean, I could go on for a whole thing about that, but I didn't have the self-confidence, even though I had all these other things. And there was something inside that said, you're just not good enough the way you are. And even when you were like straight A's, so you were the top swimmer in the country? Fast swimmer in the country for my age group and the distance events. And so all of this outside stuff, right? Like you're getting the big trophy, you're getting the A plus, and then still something inside you is saying like, well, it's not good enough. Nothing, like nothing is good enough. And so, you know, and I remember thinking like, you're not funny enough. Like that one's faster. That one's funnier and not pretty enough. She's way prettier than I. You're not smart enough because he got a better grade on his book report. You're not, you know, and so I could find people that were doing better, which cumulative told me that I wasn't good enough. And then when you're, when you're looking for that, right, when you're collecting evidence, there will be evidence, right? When you're going to collect evidence for like that you're not good enough. Like, yeah, I can get into that even now, like as a 43-year-old, you know, and it's like, oh, right, like that podcast is better. And the evidence is there if you look for it. Right. Well, it goes to that thing too. Like our thoughts create our reality. If we yes. think we're not good enough, then we're, exactly we're going to find the evidence. But if we think we are, you know, smart enough and powerful enough, we're going to find those things. That's just like people, right? And so when I was in that low point of my drinking, I surrounded myself with those people that were like me, you know. And now that I have sobriety, it's like I forget how mean people can be. Yeah, definitely. And what was your parents' situation like when when you had this internal struggle of like really feeling not good enough despite all of your accomplishments? Were your parents in on that? Or because I can definitely relate to that. And my parents got divorced when I was little. And I think that when there's that fracture, you feel it. Yeah. I mean, so I was 15 when my parents separated. So I was a little bit older and not that, you know, and it's interesting I was just reading something yesterday about hormones, right? Like hormones. And so when I was 15, I was having these painful um, menstrual cycles, right? So my mom took me to the doctor and they recommended putting me on birth control to get my cycle regular and all of this stuff, right? Yeah. And now they're finding out that women that are put, girls that are put on birth control early have a depressive episode a couple months later because the hormones in their body are so unbalanced. And so at 15, so my parents were divorcing. I was put on a medication 
I went through depression because that was when I started really drinking. I started looking at for the external stimulus to yeah. help heal this internal angst. And maybe even to not care, right? Because it sounds like you cared a lot. Like, of course, we care a lot. And I think like in my drinking story, I look back starting in high school and it's like when you do care so much and you just you want to be accepted and you want to be loved and you don't love your love yourself and you're just trying and trying and trying like that first drink of alcohol and then you can just finally like oh I don't even give a shit anymore yeah. like this is great yeah and that's what I don't remember if right it was like quieted the voices or if I just didn't care would maybe a little bit of both but yeah. either way I f- it was the only comfort I found you know and I remember asking my parents I was like can I see a therapist I mean this was 30 years ago wow and yeah and they were like what but that wasn't a thing then and when they were younger it definitely wasn't totally a thing. it was like self like navel gazing right and it's like <laughs> oh self indulgent like no you're fine like that's it was not no therapy was talking about our feelings talking like even depression was not a thing. Mm-mm. I mean, it was a thing, but it was a, a thing we didn't talk about. It was you go through it. It's a phase. And you know, yeah. even my mom said that. She's like, I thought it was just a phase. I thought she was partying. I thought, you know, yeah, it was just something that she was going through and she'd grow out of. I think for those of us, I, myself, you know, have that gene. I do believe it's genetic, that gene of addiction that switched on when we put the alcohol and drugs in our body. It's like no holds barred. It was off to the races and it was, I found my place. Right. How did the alcohol kind of affect everything else in your life when you were in high school and then college? So I was in the elite group of swimming when I, when I was younger and I got moved back to another group because my swimming started to suffer and had probably some depression and thought it was best that I practice with another group. And so that's what I did. And so my sister was then in the elite group and my brother and I, who's seven years younger, we swam together in a different group. And are you the, you're the oldest? I'm the oldest. Okay. Okay. And then it's your sister and then it's your brother. Yes. Yes. Okay. And so that it suffered. My grades started suffering. I started to just not care. I started to skip classes. I started to, you know, smoke cigarettes. I started to smoke marijuana. I started to experiment with drinking and drugs. And like, I felt accepted, but I still never felt a part of. But like, I, you know, because I could hang out with people, but mm-hmm. I still never felt like I belonged or fit in or connected because like you said, it's just the drinking or it's just the using or whatever it was that connected us. That, that was our only commonality. It was also high school. Right. And it's like, I remember having this feeling of like, well, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't really like me. You know, it's just this partying thing that's bonding us. And that's great when you're in it. It feels great. It feels exciting. And yeah, you get to escape. But then, yeah, they don't really know me. And if if someone doesn't really know you, you still aren't going to feel accepted, right? And acknowledged and understood and connected. And then as an addict, you know, I was also this chameleon. So I would be whoever it was you wanted me to be or needed me to be. So you would like me, you know, mm. and so I started losing pieces of like my soul of my identity and my, all of that stuff. Every time I, you know, shrunk to fit into these spaces or changed my perspective in order to fit in with a group. And so slowly over time, it kind of chips away, you know? So after 15 years of drinking, I found myself a total shell of a person because I didn't know who I was at that point. I'd adapted to so many situations and people and I didn't know who I was. And drinking just continued to mask that. So for me, you know, I came, you come to, for me, I came to a fork and it's like after every drink, 
after every wake up, you know, the next morning, it was either continue down that path. Cause I woke up with shame all the time. I was a blackout drinker, no idea. And it was funny in college. I thought it was funny and it's not being funny as I got older. Mm-hmm. And like, I have two choices. I can ask for help or I can bury the shame with more drink, with more alcohol, with more drugs. And I, so I, for a very long time, I kept choosing that road of, I'm going to keep going down the path because it's, I can't face this right now. And I'm not, I don't know, what am I, what am I going to do if I, what do you do if you don't drink? Right. I think shame is one of the hardest feelings to feel. I mean, it's like, it can be corrosive and to allow yourself to feel the shame of what happened when you were drinking, of not remembering. Cause I, I was a blackout drinker too in college and we're like, that's too hard. That's too painful. I can't talk about this. I can't talk about my drinking yet. It's just that shame. It feels like it's going to capsize you. I just started reading a book. It's called The Shame That Binds Us. I'll let you know how it is, but it talks about like how some of it's self-imposed shame, you know, but some of it's just boundaries too. Because if you have boundaries and you operate within those, then there's not. But once you start pushing the boundaries, whether it's drinking or family or whatever it is, that's where the shame comes in because we lose our sense of self again. But shame is powerful. Yes. And our sense of self-worth. And like we have to really value ourselves in order to protect ourselves, right? And to set boundaries. And when when you're like slowly chipping away at that to either please someone else, to escape, to really chip away at your sense of self-worth and you don't feel that, it feels like, I mean, you are telling yourself like, no, you're not you're not worth protecting. Like you're not worth setting a boundary, right? Yes. Oh man. And that's just a lot. It's a lot to have to face. It's a lot when we're older, like at my, you know, at 45, it would be a lot to manage or a lot to deal with or a lot to feel, but you know, at 15, 16, 20, 25, it feels impossible. It's hard. It's really hard. Especially when you just don't even know, you don't know who you are or who you are going to, you know, like you don't, even at 43, I'm like, some days I'm like, oh, who am I? Like, yeah, you're still, you're still discovering. And at 15, like to have that weight on your shoulders, it's, yeah, it feels like set up for failure kind of. It feels like a lot. So you were pretty young then when you stopped drinking. I was 29. Wow. I always find it wild when people stop drinking in their 20s. That feels pretty radical and huge. Maybe I'm just projecting because me in my 20s, I was not at a place where I could even say, okay, let's look at this. Let's talk about it. What's going on? Mm -hmm. So what brought you to that place of finally looking at it? So for me, I'd I'd found that every, you know, in order to feel accepted, I had had to be in a relationship. And so Mm. I was always in a relationship, you know, like it didn't matter if we had nothing in common. Like one was, you know, when was smoking pot all the time, I was drinking all the time. And so it worked great, you know, and it, it, it was not a functional um, thriving. And I just wasn't good. Like you say, your picker is broken. And so I was in a relationship yeah. and his dad was an alcoholic and his dad had just gotten, went through treatment and it was a trigger for him. And, you know, and the relationship, it didn't end well, but I, I give him credit for getting me sober and I will always be grateful for that. Like it stopped working for me. So mm. alcohol stopped working. And what I mean by that is, you know, I drink two to three bottles of wine and then I ran out one night. It was a work night. I mean, it was just a regular weeknight and I was by myself in my apartment and I was out and I walked across the street to the, there's a holiday in bar and I sat down and the bartender said, we're closing in 30 minutes. I'm like, great. Okay. I've got 30 minutes. And I drank six glasses of wine. I wasn't blacked out. I wasn't drunk and I couldn't get drunk. 
And in that moment, like you failed me, it's not working anymore. And I ended up getting really sick, but this relationship, he said to me, he's like, you're your drinking has gotten so bad, you know, because I could kind of hide it because I could drink at home or I could, you know, go out and I black out and I'd be the, you know, the yeah. crazy one at the party, but then I'd go home and drink more. And so the only yeah. person that saw that were people, you know, that are usually that I was dating. And so he said to me, if you don't get help, I'm going to tell your family how bad this is. Like, and that felt shameful because I wanted to protect it. I wanted to hide it. And I never thought I was that bad because I was just a wine drinker. Yes. It's not in a brown paper bag, right? Exactly. And so what prompts like one of the reasons that I started, I decided to share my story was because when I was struggling, that's what I saw. People with brown paper bags or when a man loves a woman with Meg Ryan. Yes. I got goosebumps. Like Same. I watched it on my anniversary. That's what I always think of. Yes. Or like Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. And I'm like, yes. well, I'm not that. Uh, exactly. Right. So nothing to see. Yeah. 16 years ago, nobody was talking about it, especially women. Women weren't talking about it. Wine, I mean, wine culture wasn't a thing then. I mean, and if it was not like it is today, there was nothing out there. And so I didn't even know where to go. And and so when I looked at that, I'm like, well, I don't have those things and I'm not going to meetings. So, cause only addicts go to meetings. Right. Like, I meet, like that was a joke, but there was nobody talking about it. So I just thought it wasn't that I was normal like everybody else. I just drank like everybody else. But what I didn't realize was when I drank, the feelings I felt and the hangover and like, you know, they talk about walking pneumonia, the feeling of waking up the next morning, like you have walking pneumonia. And I yeah. thought everybody else was going through the same thing. But what I didn't realize was that that wasn't the case. <laughs> people were going to work and people were going to school and they were going to you know, all these things. And and what I'm finding now, the, like the more women I talk to is that a lot of women are going through that, but we're still not talking about it, Right. And then it does feel like, oh, it's just me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I'm like, no, you guys, we're just not talking about this. Like if if all women talked about the shame that we felt when we were drinking and trying to moderate and doing all of these rules and like all of this stuff, I think we would find ourselves really bonded and be like, oh, wait, I thought I was alone. And yeah. I'm not. The more women that get together, the more powerful we are. Like we heal in circles. Like we heal in community. When one woman gets sober, that ripple effect of her family and her friends and her business and everything else, it is widespread. So true. And like there's nothing more powerful and badass than a sober woman. Have you read Women That Run With Wolves? No. I want to just by the title. She talks about like the domestication of the women, right? And the women, we have such powerful intuition. And if we go with what we feel and think, we are so powerful. But we're told you get married, you have kids, you have a job. No, that's what you do in order to be accepted in the paradigm that we're kind of taught from an early age. And if you don't do that, then you're kind of ostracized. And I do feel like like your podcast, right? Things like this, there is this uprising of women who are coming back home to themselves and finding their voices, which is so powerful. Yes. That's what we need because our voices are just as strong as everybody else's. But for so long, we've been told like, sit in the corner, you know, mind your manners, sit in the corner, put your feet on the ground. Don't get too hungry. Don't be too loud. Opinion. Don't talk about sex or money or any yes. of those. It's a whole Barbie monologue. Yes. Oh. You're supposed to talk about money, but not too much. You're supposed to look good, but not too pretty to be intimidating. And I sat in the movie and I was like, I know. I feel I, It's so true. It's so true. Like head to toe, I, I I felt that so much. And it is. As someone who like when I was growing up, I was definitely, you know, told it's like too loud, too much, just like – and then I, th I think alcohol is really, really good at making us then try to fit in and ignore our intuition. Like my intuition was just offline. 
And like that's the beautiful thing about sobriety is really getting I, – I call it kind of like learning my own language again and becoming fluent in me and like understanding like, oh, you know that little voice that I had like dimmed for so long? I'm starting to hear it. I'll be four years in January. And so it's like – and it all comes down to what, how do we feel and what do we need? And it's that – yeah, it's like a, it's like a new language. In the past few years, I've learned this and I feel like with feet on the ground and I'll sit there and I'll close my eyes and just, I'll say, what do you need? What do you need? And I re- repeat it until something comes through, right? Because we're going to tell ourselves what we need. Is it a hug? Sometimes I'll burst into tears. Sometimes I need to, I just need to connect with my mom. Sometimes I just yes. need to see a friend, like whatever it comes through. And so it gives me the opportunity to listen to my soul in a quiet space to give that intuition, the voice it needs to figure out what it is I need, not what I want to do or what I should do. What do I need? And not what you're thinking, right? Because our brain gets in the way, or mine does. I mean, (laughs) my brain. That's been a long battle with my brain. Yeah. And so it's not like, well, let's think about what we we need. Yeah, I love that idea of just like feet on the floor, grounding, and really like feeling it and having it come through because it does, right? And sometimes it screams. Sometimes it's within 10 seconds. It's like, I need a bath or I need a massage, whatever. And then sometimes it just takes a minute. But if you're just honoring that space and what I need. I find that with running too. Like I'm a big runner and it feels like when I don't know what to do, if I just like, I'm like, okay, just move, right? Like just move. And then my brain kind of like does its thing. It's very noisy at first and then it kind of calms out. And then, yeah, something like comes to me and I'm like, okay, that's the next thing. Okay, got it. And alcohol is just a, it's not an obstacle to all this. It's a barrier. Like it's just it's just a like brick wall in between all of this self-discovery and figuring out what we need. It's numb. It's anesthetized, you know, it anesthetizes anything. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. We have to go back to your story. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I could, I feel like we could talk forever. Okay, so at 29, okay, so your your boyfriend at the time was that was kind of enough for you to hear that because your family didn't know. So they knew I drank and they were kind of, you know, we don't like this. This is like you get drunk at family functions, like, but they only saw it few and far between. So we'd broken up and I don't know if I had called him or said, you know, but he was like, you, you've got to get your shit together. Like, this is not okay anymore. This is dangerous. And so I remember thinking, I'm going to go to outpatient because inpatient is for people with real problems. I tried 12 steps before on my own, but in in that relationship, and I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to surrender. And I went to a, yeah, I went to outpatient treatment. So I'd go to work. Nobody knew. I'd leave work. I'd go to treatment. It's three hours a night. And the first one is kind of check-in. You talk about what's going on. They give you an abuse, which is a drug that prevents you if you put alcohol in your body. It blocks the sensors in your brain. Like you won't get drunk. You'll just get sick. And so then second hour, they split it into men in one group and women in the other group. And then the third hour, we had this thing called feelings management. And I never felt oh. more adequate as a person. I never understood. I'm like, normal people just do it? Like, I don't understand. Right. I was walking like this. I didn't realize that. I'd walk around like my shoulders at my ears, my fe- my fist and my hands and fists. And I just walked around. I know. And they're like, exhale. I'm like, my shoulders aren't. And, oh my gosh. And then they just, I mean, just things that I, I just didn't know. I want to go to feelings management. I want my kids to go to feeling like, I feel like that should be a required, like, screw the recorder. Let's talk, let's talk <laughs> feelings management. 100%. No more empathy. And so we got for eight weeks and then in, you know, on the weekends, because it, 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 
at least tapped into that overachiever that I was when I was little and that the rule follower and accountability. And so I, uh, I would go to 12 step meetings on the weekends because they'd ask on Mondays when we got back, like, did you go? How many meetings? And and we went and I remember sitting in the back and being terrified, but like that intention, it goes back to that intention. I didn't want to drink. And so, and then at Friday nights I would go to, I'd work and then I'd You'd go to the treatment or I'd go to a meeting and then I'd get in my car and I'd drive. I lived in Washington, DC. I'd drive to the Target in Alexandria and I would, cause it was open till midnight and I would walk up and down the aisles because I had mm. no idea what I, I didn't know what I wanted to do if I was home by myself, even though I had no alcohol and, my, and they didn't sell alcohol at Target then, but I'd walk up and down the aisles and like, I swear I'd spent so much on a credit card that year and stuff need, but I stayed sober. <laughs> I was like, right, right. Whatever you have to do, walk, walk the aisles, aisles of Target. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, and then I just, you know, one day at a time. Yeah. Um, that first year, I was, I did everything I was suggested to be done, you know, to do. Yeah. Um, went to, you know, meetings every day. Went to, I went to 18 months of continuing care through the treatment facility. So that was once a week, kind of like group therapy. I had like this schedule. I was you know, doing all this stuff. My first year came up, I was terrified because I went and I was trying to figure it out. Like I was trying to figure out why I was a drunk, why I, I couldn't stop drinking what to expect your first year. There were like four books at Barnes and Noble on recovery at the time. That was it. Drinking a love story. Oh, so good. So good. It's such a powerful representation of women in recovery. Well, like that too. It sounds like you were like the, you were like a straight A sobriety student that first year, right? (laughs) The first year year, you were like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do whatever they say. Like you were like dedicated doing that. And so then after that first year, were you like, holy shit, I have to keep doing this? Then I was like, Oh no, this is my life now. <laughs> right. And then I stopped going to 12 step meetings and then okay. I stopped doing the things in the program. And at 18 months, I hit an emotional bottom. I'm like, mm. this is it. Sitting on the floor in my mom's kitchen up against a counter with my hands in my eye. And I'm like, this seems stupid too. Like, I don't know. And right. you know, what I realized was I wasn't doing the things I needed to do for myself. It goes back to that, you know, like think of the hole in the donut. They say it's like, wait, tell me the hole in the donut. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you had me at donut. <laughs> donuts. I know. So when I was drinking, I was kind of like that hole in the donut that needed that you needed to be filled. It, there was just this empty hole in, inside of me. And the only thing that would really fill it is a spiritual program. And so for me, I was missing that part. So I was like that hole in the donut. I was just empty. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Why I've never heard of that. Well, and it makes sense. So you were doing like all of the, like on paper, right? You were like, yes, this is what we're supposed to do to stop drinking alcohol. But then what's next? And they started trying to do it my own way. I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, I've got enough now. I've kind of banked enough sobriety where maybe I can eh, go two days without meetings. And maybe I'll go three days without meetings. And what I really found was it wasn't good for me. And I kind of needed perspective on that. Yeah. And so then where did it go from there? So then you started, did you start that kind of emotional soul work of, okay, what is missing here? Like I'm doing this sober stuff, but like there's still something missing. A little bit. Yes. And so I would go to meetings, you know, I was really tapped into the community. I'd go to meetings. I'd do step work. I would work with the sponsor and, you know, did all of those things. And I still, you know, five years I was diagnosed with depression. Mm -hmm. And what that taught me was that, like, you know, not drinking doesn't make my life perfect, but not drinking gave me tools to be able to deal with the depression when it did come up. And I took it to a meeting. I went into a meeting and I said, I don't know, you know, or community, like whatever that community looks like. And that's how powerful it's like, I don't know what, what is happening. And I don't know where, I didn't know where to go. Yeah. It was like this little baby deer. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And someone's like, this is my therapist. 
just why don't you just try to give give him a call and see what he said. I'm like, but I'm already in AA or, you know, I'm already in 12 steps. Like I'm already here. What would you do something else now? Like, what do you mean? And so it started to teach me, like I'm responsible for my own well being and happiness. And so I started going to therapy and um, I took medication for a little bit because that was what I needed to, to feel better. And at 10 years, my son was born 10 days after I celebrated my 10th anniversary. My wow. son Alexander was born. Um, he came to, took him to a meeting and I picked up my chip and oh wow. Is it's amazing. And then I got I know I got him. chills. And I'm pretty sure he had a blowout and had to like take his onesie <laughs> off right beforehand and like just wrap him in a blanket. And I remember people being like, Why is your baby naked? I mean, you know, like then they, then they weren't moms. Boy, a young man. Any, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any moms would be like, Yep, okay. Because it was either I come here with this baby wrapped in a blanket or I go home. And at 10 years he was born, and that was, you know, a great gift. And I had severe postpartum depression after that. And so I kind of went back to my therapist and and worked through that. And then you know, at 15 years last year, it was, I finalized a pretty challenging divorce and uh, launched a business and I moved. And then my dad died unexpectedly at the oh. end of 2022 after I acknowledged 15 years. And I'm so sorry. You know, in that moment, thank you. It was unexpected. He didn't wake up. And my dad was my cheerleader. My dad dating back to when I was drinking was my safe space. And in that moment, I was like, I'm done. I'm drinking. Don't care. Don't care. Yeah. You know, but gratefully and thankfully I had 15 years behind me. I thought it through putting alcohol in my body was not going to bring my dad back. It was going to make me feel maybe okay for 10 minutes and then intense shame, intense guilt, all of that stuff. And I knew that. And so I actually went and I bought a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'll do this. Smoke when I was drinking. I was, I needed something. I lost my dad like two years ago. It was the same. Yeah. Like my best friend was like, if you drink now, everyone will understand. No one would be like, what? I can't believe it because it was a sudden tragic thing. And I was like, I came to the same realization. It's like, wait, this sucks. And it's like the worst heartbreak I've ever felt. Mm -hmm. But like drinking on top of this, I would have a hangover and shame. I can't. Good for you. It's hard because in that moment, you're like, don't care. Right, right. You feel so much. You just want to get it out. Yeah. And and you're just like, okay, fuck it. Like it's that reaction of like, how could this have happened? Like, yeah. And then it's just like, okay, then fuck it. Then I don't care about anything right now. Right. And it's like, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to show up for myself. I don't want to. And then, yeah, if you sit with that. And that's what it takes is just sitting with that and being like, okay. There's this really powerful stat that I read, I think on Instagram. You know, feelings last for five to 15 minutes. I, I forget what the exact number is and I have it saved and I can send it to you, but that's how the feelings of something last, the story loop that keeps us in it. <sighs> yes. So like whether someone cut you off in traffic or you didn't get a promotion or whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. if for a couple minutes you feel the feelings, but it's like, then you start telling the story. I'm not good enough. It's all the judgment that we, yes. And we can get bogged down, right? I always think about that, like the motion in emotion, like it's in the word, like it's telling us, right? Like it's telling us it will pass. Yes. Like the motion, like it's not here to stay. I always talk about like in sobriety, it's like, what's the worst thing in sobriety is that you, you have to feel. And so you're going to feel uncomfortable. Like I feel like a lot of us don't want to feel uncomfortable because it's not fun and it sucks. But the worst thing when alcohol is invited, man. I could go down the list. <laughs> like my brain will go there and it's losing everything. 
Everything. And that's what I realized. I could lose my son. I would die alone. Like, cause there's no guarantee I'm coming back. If I put a sip of alcohol, someone said to me, they're like, well, how do you know? It's been 15 years. Do you think we're 16 years? It was 15 at that time. Do you think you could still have, maybe you could have one. I'm like, maybe. Yeah. But you know what? Like right now I am better than I've ever felt when I was drinking. I'm more grounded. And if that means that I don't get to try that bubblegum vodka or whatever it is that's out now, like I'm good with that. Like I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like it shifts from drinking being a privilege and like a privilege that you lost out on to then sobriety being like the biggest gift and privilege. A conscious choice of choosing you. I love it. Okay. So then at 15 years, so the divorce, your dad passes away and you're, you're smoking cigarettes. God bless her. I tell this story when I, when I, when I share and um, my mom said to me, she's like, do you have to do that? God bless her. She's like, can't you go just drink like a cappuccino? Like <laughs> Like it's not the same mom. And I said, okay, do you know what I want to do? I want to go to a bar. I want to get really drunk. I want to probably find some drugs. I don't want to see you for a week. I probably won't show up at dad's funeral. And you might not hear from me for a while. And she's like, what? She's like, that's the option? No, okay. You go smoke those cigarettes. And she didn't realize like how much of an impact that would. And I was like, but that's like, those are the options. I'm either going to smoke the cigarettes, which is like, you know, or I'm going to go fast and I'm going to like hit it. It's yeah. So at 15 years, so at that point, you know, also t- t- totally transparent in the relationship. Like I was told it was embarrassing and shameful. Mm. So I was told that don't tell anybody. So that's why a lot of my friends didn't know either. Like this, you're going to bring shame. Don't talk about this. This is going to look really poorly, you know? And so I kept it. So it was perpetuated, you know, and it was, and, and so after when I kind of was removed from that, and I started seeing the numbers from COVID about the women, 300% increase drinking and women with kids at home, small kids at home, and the 42% increase in women. And, you know, I work with Ashley Addiction Treatment in Maryland, and they were saying, well, the numbers we see aren't getting better. It's still two and a half men to every one woman is getting sober, even after, even as these numbers are on the rise. And so in that moment yeah. was when I was like, you know what? I don't have the luxury to stay silent anymore because people were talking about it when I was getting sober. And so if I can say like, look, this is what I went through. This is how I felt, you know? And if another woman can say like, wow, that resonates with me. I don't know where to turn. She went to treatment or, you know, maybe I can try 12 step or maybe I can reach out and I answer every message that I get. So if there's a woman that's like, I'm struggling, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to get on a zoom? Because again, it goes back to that one woman getting sober or healing impacts so many others. And when I decided to open my mouth and share that story, it was truly, if there's one woman that sees this and says, oh my gosh, that's my story. She's not living under a bridge, you know, like, like the media portrayal or, or Meg Ryan, or, you know, she's not like that. It was okay. Then maybe, maybe. Right. We just never know the power or who's going to hear a message or how they're going to hear it or when they're going to hear it. Yeah. So I think, you know, I love this continuously sharing and I love what you're doing and just sharing stories of women. And it's like, that's what we need and what helps people thrive. And because I was just living, right? Like I was existing when I was drinking and I wanted to live. I wanted to thrive. That's why I, the women in my group, even if it's, you know, a month, two months, whatever, it starts to feel sticky. Like I don't want to say I'm on antibiotics anymore. That's why I can't drink, right? Or I don't want to just like pretend I'm drinking but not drink because now you can fully come home to yourself and know that there is no shame in sobriety. The shame that you felt when you were drinking, like that's in the past. Like you don't have to bring that into your sobriety. There's just, we don't have to be anonymous. And there's just such a, I think it's like a true coming home to yourself. Mm -hmm. 
And once you do it once, it becomes easier. Anything in sobriety becomes so whether you're single and you start dating or whether you go to a party the first time or you attend, you know, your first Christmas with your family sober, like whatever that looks like, the first time is always the hardest. Yes. So, you know, I remember women, I'm like, okay, go to the bathroom and call me. Or if you have to leave, just go. Yes, just go. What's the most important thing? You know, is it your sobriety or is it the, the ego, right? Because that's what right. it is. But it's hard. Like I totally understand the first time, but it's yeah. like once you do it the first time and say, I'm not drinking because, and my friend would say, she says it, she's, she's amazing. You know, she had the same question when she was, she has one child and they said, why don't you have any more? And she's like, I can't. And they're like, what do you mean you can't? And she's like, well, and she would explain it. And then people are usually like, oh, right. like, I really want to know. Like, do you want to know? Why aren't you drinking? Because if I drink, I'm going to total a car and maybe kill a family of four. Because I love myself too much. Yes. Like I love myself and I love my life way too much to let alcohol come in to do its thing, right? But I love that what you say. Yeah. It's like just doing it the first time saying like, I'm not drinking tonight. Yes. And then just leaving it at that. And then if people it's, but it's hard, it's hard. Like anything else to do for the first time, it's hard. And it's a practice. Yes, totally. And then it gets so much. And then I was just at a sober retreat this last weekend and I was like, you guys, isn't it crazy that we're all sitting around talking about our drinking? And like six years ago, I would have been like, holy sh, no, 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 no. And now we just like openly talk, you know, and we're like, oh my God, me too. Like, oh, oh my God. Remember the 3 a.m. wake-ups that were like, yeah, and the blackouts, like, and to be able just to openly talk about it and connect and like no shame. Powerful. Yeah. I would sneak drinks, meaning would drink in private. I thought I was the only person in the world that did that because nobody's talking about it. Like nobody was. And so I remember going into treatment. I'm like, sat really quiet. I'm like, okay, fine. They're like, you know, you're as sick as your secret. So this is a safe space to share. I'm like, okay, well, sometimes I drink in private when nobody's around and it's, and people are like, me too, me too. Right? You're me expecting too. like gasps. And then everyone's like, well, yeah. Everybody does that. I'm like, what? <gasps> yes. And how does it feel like because of your brother, like you were in the public eye anyway. And so you sharing your sobriety isn't just like, you know, someone who is not publicly known sharing her sobriety. And so you actually were like, no, 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 I am going to really share it. So how does it feel after 15 years of not sharing it? Like, how has it felt? I feel free. <sighs> it's the last bit of shame. It like kicks down the wall of shame because I was straddling these two lives, you know, like not sharing. And now it's just, I just am. I'm living authentically and living joyfully. It's a peace unlike anything I've ever, because I don't, and it's not like I walk on the street and I'm like, I'm sober. Right. I'm so, like, it's not something it's not like proselytizing. <laughs> exactly. So I don't share. But if it comes up I, and you know, it's still really uncomfortable. People, you know, people say, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, you know, I wear a couple of hats, like one. And I said, but I also advocate for recovery specifically in women. Like I want to help women get sober. Yeah. And men will look at like, huh? Oh, see? And I'm like, Huh. And, and you're I'm like, like, oh, does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> really uncomfortable at first. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough. They don't accept me. What? And I'm like, you know what? Nope, I'm just in the wrong room. Yes. So I need to go into another room and take up space there with women who want to hear, or, or men that are interested in it, or men that have loved ones at home and they want to hear the story because not everybody's going to hear the message. And that's okay too. But that's a lesson that I've had to learn this year that not everybody's going to clap for me or shout from the rooftops that, or anything or give me any knowledge. Some people are going to turn away from me and be like, huh. 
And that's just all about them, right? That's about their relationship with alcohol or their what, whatever their shit is. And it can be so easy to internalize it. But I love the idea like, oh, I'm just not in the right room. Just not in the right room. Oh my God, I wish we could talk forever. I, I can't thank you enough. Like you are just, you're a bright light. And you know, it's funny when women come on here and they talk about kind of who they were when when they were drinking and I can't see it. You know, like I can't see you being anything but who you are and, and who I see on Instagram and just being so inspiring and you're just so grounded and so I can't, I can't, it doesn't compute that you weren't always that. Thank you. The thing is 16 years ago, I was one person, but two years ago, I was the 180 of what I am now too. And so there's so much growth. That's like, it was a whole different catalyst for change and growth when I left my marriage because yeah. I was in the wrong room yes. and like addiction, it was starting to change who I was mm-hmm. and that wasn't okay. And so I know it's funny. Like people say that now yeah. they're like, wait, what? You were, I'm like, no, I was a shell. I was not this. I was not, you know, but it's freedom, right? It feels good to just be authentic and free. Thank you for acknowledging that. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you can just see it. And if anyone listening to this, I just hope it gives you hope. If if you are in the wrong room, like let's all go to Hillary's room. We're coming yeah. over. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. This was just wonderful. You are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay, I'll see you next week. I'm going to go reheat my coffee. Bye. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.